welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover Two Resources. This is part three of our conversation with Joseph Renazizi, who for over a decade was the front man in the government's battle against the opioid epidemic. Today, we'll discuss how the approach to enforcement taken by the DEA's office seemed to become much friendlier after key members of the agency left and went to work in the pharmaceutical industry. As we begin, Mr. Renzizi shares a period of escalating conflict between his agency and Congress. When they had the investigation on us for lack of communication with, with the drug industry and our relationship with the drug industry, they hammered us and they basically said we weren't adequately communicating uh, information to the drug companies. Even though we explained to them, we sat down with companies, we, we did on-site investigations, inspections of the companies. We had a, a call line where they could call in and request information. We had a website. They said the website wasn't very user-friendly and it should, it was just all crazy. It was nonsense. It was Congress attacking a, a, a an agency because they were doing their job, because they didn't want them to do their job. And that's what it was. Between 2011 and 2015, before passage of the bill restricting the DEA's ability to issue immediate suspension orders, ISOs dropped from 58 to just five. I asked Mr. Renazizi why. Let's just talk about that, because our ISOs did go down. We had a change in leadership. Uh, we were getting pressure from Congress, but there was a change in leadership at the uh, at the um, uh, uh, attorney level at DEA. Let me jump in on that. You had someone that you worked with by the name of Lyndon Barber, and you and he worked very closely, I believe, um, in these uh, these years leading up to this pivot point, right? Yeah, Lyndon Barber was there for a. Oh, for a while. He came on a little later after that. So during the very effective crackdown period, I'll say, he, during yeah. leading up to and including 2013. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's when he came down, uh, came on. Shortly after that, we, uh, a, a, an attorney from the Justice Department came over. And that really was when a lot of a lot of things happened where uh, there was changes in what was required to do these cases and, and changes procedurally, which really slowed down everything. The attorneys that were up there who wanted to do cases, they couldn't get those cases done. After, after 2012, procedurally, everything changed and we weren't losing cases. I mean, we our track record was was phenomenal with cases. It's it's like the immediate suspension orders. You know, our track record. I think we lost five immediate suspension orders in forty years, and then all of a sudden, the the 
the rules of the game changed because a new attorney came in and decided he was going to make it more difficult to get these cases through. And that's exactly what happened. In May of 2015, the Department of Justice announced the appointment of Chuck Rosenberg to serve as the acting administrator of the DEA. That proved to be a pivot point in how the agency approached enforcement. So the investigators became frustrated. They were trying to move their cases through. They couldn't. They would keep roadblock after roadblock. And as one investigator said, you know, it almost seems like, you know, we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, uh, you know, and it, it was it was a problem. Meanwhile, Lyndon Barber and some of his associates went across to the other side, began working for the pharmaceutical industry. And I know that had a little bit of an impact. In fact, Mr. Barber argued that uh, the Walgreens case would have resulted in a narrowing in the DEA's authority had the agency not settled. And he urged the committee to take action legislatively to uh, clarify the meaning of imminent danger in the law. And so it would appear that his changing sides had a decided influence on the outcome of this law change. Why would the committee listen to somebody that no longer is with DEA? Uh, I, I, I can't understand that. And, and this is a person who's now working for the industry who's, who's telling a committee uh, or, or, or providing his opinion uh, to a committee about what DEA needs. And that's just outrageous. I'm just flabbergasted that Congress would take the word of an industry attorney over the word of an agency that was actually enforcing the law. Maybe, maybe people should ask themselves, why would Congress do that? Regardless of what his experience was, he's now working for industry. He's going to give an opinion, in my opinion, he's going to give an opinion that would be pro-industry. And that's what the opinion was. It was pro-industry. Change the law. And this idea that the numbers were going down, so who cares anyway? Well, the point is, it's a tool that's effective. So if if the tool is taken away because the quote-unquote numbers are going down, that doesn't make any sense. The tool was put into place to protect the public. When Congress took that tool away, the only thing it told me was they didn't want to protect the public. There was no reason to protect the public. Not when industry is out there uh, providing to their PACs and their, their, their campaigns. So... This is all nonsense. Everything, everything about that, that hearing was nonsense. They just wanted to, they wanted to put industry's point across so they could use that as a foundation to change the law that was protecting the public. And they should be ashamed for that. As reported in a 2017 Vox article, in order for the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act to pass, DEA approval was critical, and the DEA was reluctant to do so, and only came on board after leadership changes and heavy lobbying from the industry, including people like Lyndon Barber, 
a former DEA lawyer who now works for the drug distributor, Cardinal Health. So they listened to Mr. Barber, and um, he, of course, went across the street to start working for the pharmaceutical industry. And um, he's not the only one. Now, at this point, you have, I guess, it's more than 33, I'm told, of the former people in the division for diversion control are now working in the pharmaceutical industry. How big and how significant do you think that is, that nearly, what is that, 5% of the workforce has gone to the pharmaceutical (laughs) industry? I I think that, first of all, I don't ever, I never question why a person goes, goes to work for anyone. Does it make a difference? Yes, because for the most part, they know operations at DEA. They know how we do investigations. And uh, for the most part, not everything, but they know some things. Uh, so so they become, yeah, they, 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 they can help industry uh, better learn how to, how, how to uh, avoid issues with DEA. And, you know, in some respects, that's a good thing because if they make them comply with the law, if they require them to comply with the law, then you know, that's that's a very good thing. But if they're doing it to, to figure ways to circumvent the law, well, that's not a good thing because they just contribute to diversion. Joining me now for commentary on this episode is Chris McGreal, author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. So, Chris, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. In your book... You wrote, the drug industry's influence over Congress is facilitated by the promise of lucrative second careers lobbying. And you use the example of Congressman Billy Tauzin, who played an important role as the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee in shepherding the 2003 piece of legislation that limited price negotiations into law. The following year, he left Congress to take up a seat as the head of the drug manufacturing trade group, Pharma, making $2 million. How big of an impact do you think this walking across the street from their position in diversion control and elsewhere in government and joining the pharmaceutical industry, how big of an impact has that had on the opioid epidemic, Chris? I think it's very significant because you see it in all kinds of areas. You see it with Congress going over, former members of Congress like Billy Talzin going over to the pharmaceutical industry. You see uh, people in the FDA going over to individual drug companies. Uh, You see people from... Um, the from law enforcement or the DEA or the Justice Department uh, going over as well. And what they all do, of course, is use their former contacts. Uh, and sometimes it's quite subtle, but it gives them access. It gives the industry access to those parts of uh, the government, the regulatory, the law enforcement, uh, the legislative, uh, that other people don't have. It's a quite a common complaint, actually, from those people who are have been campaigning for change, often because they've lost uh, family members, that they don't have the kind of access that the drug companies do because of this uh, merry-go-round between uh, uh, federal positions or or, or law enforcement positions and uh, the drug companies themselves. And you see it. You see 
that that link played all the time. I mean, we saw it uh, run Assisi uh, and the DEA when uh, former DEA officials that have gone lawyers that have gone over to the drug companies then put pressure on the Department of Justice to put pressure on the DEA to put pressure on Rana Sisi. Um, but, but he tells them, as you said, uh, he goes, uh, he, he sits in Congress, he gets through this 2003 law, which essentially is a gift to the drug companies. What it says is that the the government cannot negotiate down the price of Medicare drugs or the drugs that Medicare buys from the pharmaceutical industry. And also that Medicare must cover any drug that a patient wants, which is just really a way of gifting very large amounts of money uh, from the American taxpayer through Medicare to the pharmaceutical industry. Towson then goes off. Uh, within a year, he's working for the pharmaceutical uh trade group, the, the chief lobbyists, uh, and he's actually one of the most effective lobbyists for any industry on Capitol Hill. By the time he retires a few years later, he's earning $11 million a year. And you see plenty of people like this, even going so far back as to uh, the FDA official who originally approved uh, Podu Pharma's OxyContin drug, a man called Curtis Wright. He approves the drug without uh, any great uh, testing or research, um, no clinical trials, lets it onto the market. A couple of years later, he's working for Purdue Pharma. So in essence, industry compensated former members of Congress for the work they did while in Congress. That's right. And you can see that, in fact, uh, that was very widespread when Billy Towson was pushing through that 2003 bill. There was some hesitation on the floor of Congress. And at that time, lobbyists who were former members of the Congress were allowed onto the House floor. And Towson brought them in. He brought in all these lobbyists who come from uh, Capitol Hill, and they were on the floor of the House, strong-arming uh, the the then members into passing this bill. And it, it, there was a real blurring of lines there. Who are they really serving? What on earth are they doing on the House floor when they're not even elected anymore and they're serving an industry? And that is how close uh, that relationship was. And the message, of course, goes out to anybody else on the House floor that vote the right way, there'll be a job for you doing the same thing after you perhaps lose an election. It was quoted that your agency was treating pharmaceutical companies like illicit narcotics cartel. Speak to that. Well, you know, my problem with the industry is how many times do we have to give them a chance to comply? The government doesn't have a problem arresting drug dealers who are slinging, you know, crack from corners or, you know, doing transactions, uh, bringing in small quantities of, um, no one has problems arresting those people because in reality, well, they're, they're perceived as the bad guys. But when drug companies do the exact same thing in huge quantities, but only they're not flinging from the hip on the corner, they're, they're, they're sending drugs downstream knowing that they're going to go and get into the hands of people who uh, don't need those drugs or who are doing something 
diverting those drugs for illicit purposes. They're doing the same thing. And there comes a time where, yeah, you, you've got to treat them for what they are. And I stand by that. I, 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 I have no problem if, you, if you're going to accuse me of, of treating them like drug dealers or cartels or whatever other nonsense came out of Congress. Sure. Okay. Well, if they're violating the law uh, and they're buying their way out of those violations, well, you know, I could call them whatever I want to call them. Because they're doing exactly what that kid on corner is doing. It's just that he's doing it in a in a manner that's extremely overt, and they're doing it in a manner that's extremely covert. But it's all the same. Mr. Renazizi's frustration comes through in a letter published in the report, where he writes, Cardinals under an MOA because of their previous failure to comply with the act resulting in the diversion of millions of dosage units of controlled substances. So, instead of putting an end to the hemorrhaging immediately, we're going to listen to what Cardinal has to say and then possibly issue an order to show cause to show that we really, really, really mean business this time? How many chances do we have to give Cardinal? Well, I'm not going to address those letters specifically. Those letters uh, speak for themselves. Uh, and you could take whatever you want to take away from them. I, uh, my frustration with those attorneys were everything was being slowed down. Um, I was, we were trying to move forward because there were a lot of people being harmed and we needed to get our cases done. And um, they were taking a different approach. And that's basically what those letters said. Um, I, I, I don't know what else to say about those letters. It's a question you should probably ask the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, we needed to get cases done. We needed to stop the hemorrhaging. And uh, uh, we had no time for moving in slow motion. So if you were to go back and um, kind of play things uh, through from 2013 to present, what are the things that you would, and you were running the show of diversion control, what would you do? Well, it depends. Is, is the uh, immediate suspension order in place or, or not? I, I, I wouldn't do anything differently, that's for sure. I, I, look, just because you're a Fortune 500 company or just because you're a, uh, uh, in that drug delivery system doesn't mean that you're protected from from violations of the law. What I would do is make sure that that these people were held accountable for what they did. I, uh, I wouldn't back down from Congress, that's for sure. As you could see, Congress passing that bill were, were nothing short of uh, self-serving because they got they, they were rewarded by industry for doing what they did. In researching your book, you interviewed Mr. Renazizi, and you spent time researching that bill that crippled the DEA diversion control enforcement efforts by making it nearly impossible to get an immediate suspension order. In your estimation, how damaging has the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act, the name of that bill that did that, how damning has that been to the DEA's uh, enforcement efforts? I think it had two really important effects. 
One was just the immediate practical effect that the distributors knew that um, if they were caught not uh, alerting the DEA to suspicious orders, uh, not alerting the DEA to the fact that drugs were being diverted by pharmacies or or that there was evidence that these drugs were not going to, to who they were intended to go to, um, that they really wouldn't be paying a price. Uh, and, and for quite a long time, the, these distribution companies have effectively been able to buy their way out of accountability by paying civil fines. But that was still a process that was embarrassing to them, and it was still a process which, it, which was getting more difficult for them. The fines were going up, and there was always the threat of uh, criminal sanction and, more importantly, suspension of their ability uh, to distribute much wider, not just to the affected pharmacies. So it interfered with their business. Um, when this new legislation came in, uh, that got them off the hook. Uh, it essentially said that the DEA uh, had to give them warning and an opportunity to uh, to correct their actions. In other words, you know, as Rana Sisi pointed out, it was as though a criminal gets a chance to uh, return the money to the bank after a bank robbery if they're caught and then get let off the hook. But I think there was also a much wider um, impact, which was the message went out that Congress was going to have the industries back. It had up until that point anyway, but here was a, a definitive evidence that it, at the height of the epidemic, when there was really no doubt about what was going on anymore uh, in this country with uh, opioids, uh, an escalating death toll, that whatever the role of the industry, it was going to be protected by Congress. That legislation really was a clear indicator of which side Congress was on. And I think um, the, the drug companies, not only the distributors, but the manufacturers uh, will have walked away from the message that there really wasn't going to be any accountability. So they won. They did win. Yes, absolutely. And you can see that uh, at the time. Um, there, there was very little uh, that changed. They didn't change their behavior. Rana Sisi was absolutely right. He was out uh, and they carried on as before. I read it as them being snowed a little bit. Is that, no, is that naive no, on my part? No. no. You know what? I'm tired of hearing this unintended consequences. They knew what was going on. Well, at least leadership did because and the and the people who were supporting the bill did because we were in contact with them. You know, in 2014, they asked me for technical advice. I told them that this bill was going to protect the companies that DEA was investigating. This bill was going to hurt, hurt DEA operations because what you were doing was changing the, uh, changing the law to, to uh, hamper the ability of DEA to go after companies upstream with immediate suspension orders. Uh, we told them there's no reason for it. We, we have a great track record, and they didn't want to hear it. We sent emails and, and memos over to Congress. And if, you look at, if you look at even the Justice Department liaison, congressional liaison, basically said you know, in one of her emails that you know, it's, it's, the, it's the best we're going to get. Uh, there, there was no this idea that Orrin Hatch was saying we negotiated this in 2014. DEA was patently opposed, as was the J Department of Justice. The 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 Attorney General questioned uh, why 
a bill like this would be passed at the height of the epidemic in an open in an open meeting. Okay, um, all this was happening. So they didn't like what they heard in 2014. So in 2015, they get rid of me. The attorney general leaves. They have a whole new set of people, and and they get rid of all the people who who are knowledgeable on this, and then push it through. Okay, is that is that is that really a person like Orrin Hatch, who's Mister Law and Order? Is that really what you or Sheldon Whitehouse? Come on, who who constantly says I, I love the police, I, I I worked with DEA, and okay, so then why did you strip DEA? Of, a, of an investigative tool that will indeed protect the public and save lives. You know, this is just typical Congress. You know, it's all half-truths or denying knowledge, plausible deniability. I asked Chris the same question. Did Congress get snowed by industry lobbyists? I don't know that members of Congress were snowed into passing the law that restricted the DEA's ability to shut down suspicious orders and pharmacies and distributors who were delivering them. I think it was much more a continuation of the existing narrative that the drug companies have been pushing and that so many members of Congress had already bought into, which was really to blame the victims, to say that those who overdosed and and died were the problem, not the pills. There was nothing wrong with the prescribing, it was the people who were taking them. And that continued in the debate about this law, which was pushed, the idea was pushed uh, to members of Congress and by members of Congress that if the DEA shut down uh, distributors, it shut down pharmacists, then that would restrict the ability of people, legitimate pain patients as they were characterized, to get the drugs that they needed. And the argument was put forward uh, and members of Congress embraced it just as they had in keeping the mass prescribing open for years that uh, legitimate pain patients, as they were characterized, shouldn't be made to be punished uh, for the sins of those who were characterized as abusers. These people weren't snowed, like uh, Tom Marino. Tom Marino was not snowed. No. uh, Marsha Blackburn and her uh, unintended consequences narrative, that was outrageous. I wrote a I wrote an article about that uh, in in the Tennessean, uh, an op-ed, because I was just tired of listening to her say things like that. In his November 2018 op-ed published in the Tennessean, Mr. Renazizi didn't pull any punches. In the article about the DEA's ability to issue ISOs, he wrote, This measure allowed the DEA to stop companies from continuing to do business with controlled substances if the agency determined their conduct posed an imminent danger to the public safety. But Blackburn's law changed all that, and in doing so, protected pharmaceutical companies, not the public. Blackburn's law also contained what amounts to a get-out-of-jail-free card, a provision allowing companies to stonewall the DEA by submitting so-called Corrective action plans. It was disingenuous. Why, why would you say that? You knew what the consequences were. We told you. I told you. And you didn't like it. So what you did was you sent a letter to the OIG saying that I was trying to intimidate Congress because you asked me for my technical advice on a bill. And I told you exactly what would happen. And it did. 
If you, you know, the staffers on that call were well aware of what would happen on that bill. And they chose to just move forward with it anyway. And open investigation on me for quote unquote, trying to intimidate Congress. And then she says unintended consequences. And we elect these people. God help us. Join us next time when the former head of diversion control for the DEA shares his perspective on how to stop the false and misleading sales practices of an entire industry. My name is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.